This morning's message I've got prepared. I've been working on this for a while. It's something that's um, close to my heart, something that I've dealt with a lot of different people. It's on homosexuality. Is it actually wrong? Uh, This is, um, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read this verse and give you why I've framed this sermon in this way. 2 Timothy 3.16. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When we come together in the church, the Bible has the primary place of honor within the worship service. We meet together to be taught from the word of God for edification, for sanctification, and to marvel at the works of God. Unfortunately, this does not always happen in many churches. This is a quote from uh, Puritan Evangelism, a book that was handed out at Reformation Day. The evangelistic sermons of contemporary preachers often incorporate verses wrested out of context or string of texts that do not belong together. Modern evangelism in quest of a simple gospel favors a mere formula, a packaged presentation, instead of the whole counsel of God. Moreover, some preachers seem to have a better understanding of professional football and television programs or the teaching of Sigmund Freud and Paul Tillich than they do of Moses and Paul. A lot of times when we come to churches, they'll use psychology as their basis for dealing with human problems. While as Christians, the word of God is how we deal with human problems. And so I wanted to say that this sermon um, is not just how to deal with homosexuality, but it's it's also an argument for the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give some secular argumentation And then we're going to dive into the Bible. This is so we can see the difference between the secular model of thinking about things and the biblical model for the purpose of showing that Scripture is authoritative and is superior to uh, the secular model. Also, I have this mostly written down. Um, Because this is something so close to my heart, it would be easy to get passionate and, and go off into different rabbit trails, so I'll be sticking to somewhat of a script this morning. About nine years ago, I had my first confrontation with someone who was homosexual. And since then, God has brought different people into my life who have been homosexual. And so dealing with this issue, it's easy to just go off. So I'm going to stick to a script, if you'll allow that this morning. This message, again, although dealing with specifically with the difficult issue of homosexuality, is also aimed at showing the superiority of God's word compared to secular reasoning. While non-religious reasoning may not speak about God, it still assumes morality. We can use logic and be refreshed because ultimately logic comes from the mind of God. So even when a secular person is using logic, they're, they're uh, appealing to God. Because of this, the following arguments aren't completely void of merit, but should point us back to Scripture. We will look at a few secular arguments against homosexuality and then move to big, biblical arguments to show that His word is greater than man's wisdom. So why this topic of homosexuality? Let me give you kind of a local context. Um, This is a quote that was in the Ada Evening News uh, a few years back. Um, 
speaking of the issue of same-sex marriage that's been pushed uh, by government. This is clearly one of the greatest milestones in the journey toward equality in Oklahoma. Countless couples have waited for years and decades to get married and have their marriages recognized in the place they call home. And so today, lesbians and gay men move one step closer to the equality guaranteed by our United States Constitution. So again, this person is appealing to the government, the state constitution, and that's where we get our rights from. Okay? Here's another a quote. And again, this is the local context here within ADA. Christine Pappas, professor of political science and sponsor of the Gay-Straight Alliance at East Central University, said she remembered when Oklahomans approved the state ban on same-sex marriage in 2004. As a lesbian, I was very disappointed, she said in an email to the Ada News reporter. As a constitutional law scholar, it had set me that the government of Oklahoma allowed the rights of a minority to be put to a vote of the majority. I knew then that the ban would fall someday, but I'm very surprised that it fell so soon. Now, I, I've taken a class with Christine Pappas. She's a very nice lady, and she knows her stuff. She's very well-educated, um, but I think she's wrong here. So this is why it's an issue. This is in ADA. Uh, ADA is actually known essential. The campus is known for being a campus that welcomes homosexuality. Um, a lot of people go there because of that fact. So let's look at some statistics of homosexuality. Dan Black's demographics of the gay and lesbian population places the male homosexual population at 2.5%, just 2.5%, and the female homosexual population at 1.4%. But when we look at our culture, that, that doesn't seem like the case. But the per percentage of homosexual men and women in the entertainment industry is far greater. And we know that Americans are all about entertainment. So if you're being entertained, most likely the people you're being entertained by are in that lifestyle. So that's why we see on ABC, they're redefining a new kind of family. Um, that's what they're pushing. This is the entertainment. In general population, um, it's much uh, lower, but in entertainment, it's higher. Another study examined reasons for suicide attempts within homosexuality and found that if the reasons for the attempt were connected to homosexuality, about two out of three were due to breakups of relationships, not outside pressures. Um, the reason we talk about this is because many people don't want to address the issue of homosexuality because you might push them to suicide. And, and we know there's been some in the news, some pro, high-profile people that have had deaths because of, of homosexuality. But when they did the study, they said it's not because of this talking about homosexuality or, or, or saying that it's wrong. It's because of the number of breakups that they go through. They feel rejected because they can't find um, a sustainable relationship. And so it's because of the homosexuality that they're driven to suicide, not because of our reaching out to them. Uh, another study also found the major reason for suicide attempts was the breakup of relationships. In second place, they said, was the inability to accept oneself. Since homosexuals have greater numbers of partners and breakups compared with heterosexuals, and since long-term gay male relationships are rarely monogamous, meaning that they're with one person at a time, it is hardly surprising if suicide attempts are proportionally greater. So think about that. They have a hard time accepting themselves. Well, that should speak to the issue that we're created in God's image. He has a purpose for man and for woman. So if they're having a hard time accepting themselves, it's probably speaking to that. Health risks, the promiscuous person, either heterosexual or homosexual, 
may in fact be more likely to be antisocial. A study examined patients at a clinic which found 38% of homosexual men seeking such services had antisocial personality disorder, as well as 28% of heterosexual men. So in general, promiscuity has higher uh, rates of being antisocial, uh, but it's much higher in, in a homosexual. Uh, secondly, it was previously noted that 43% uh, of bulimic sample of men were homosexual or bisexual, a rate about 15 times higher than the rate in the population in general, meaning homosexual men are probably disproportionately liable to this mental condition. And it says this may be due, in fact, to very strong preoccupation with appearance or physique frequently found among male homosexuals. It's about this appearance and attracting other partners, and so they do things that are unhealthy for that. Same-sex eroticism becomes, for many, the central value of existence. It's all about this. This becomes their identity. And nothing else, not even life and health issues, uh, can get in the way. They're not allowed to interfere with the pursuit of this lifestyle. Homosexual uh, pr promiscuity fuels the AIDS crisis in the West, but even this tragedy is not allowed to interfere with sexual freedom. So they're not concerned about their health, and they're not concerned about their life. They just... They don't want you to deny them this right to homosexuality, even if it costs them their life. So that, that doesn't even get in the way for them. Uh, two extensive studies appearing in October 2000, issue of the American Medical Association's archive, um, confirm a strong link between homosexual sex and suicide, as well as a relationship between homosexuality and emotional and mental problems. And so this, be thinking in your mind, gospel issues, this is tearing them apart. As people, this is ruining their lives. And that's just like sin. That's what sin does. And so it leads to this. One of the studies in the journal uh, by David M. Ferguson and his team found that gay, lesbian, and bisexual young people are at increased risk of psychiatric disorder and suicidal behaviors. So young people that are dealing with the issue of homosexuality or bisexuality are dealing with these at higher risks. They're suffering from they're uh, four times as likely as their peers to suffer from major depression. So four, four times as likely. In our culture as it is, I mean, we know lots of students deal with depression. But if they're dealing with homosexuality, they're four times as more likely to deal with that. Uh, almost three times as likely to suffer from generalized anxiety disorder. Nearly four times as likely to experience conduct disorder. Five times as likely to have nicotine dependence. This one, six times as likely to suffer from multiple disorders. So if it wasn't bad enough that depression, they're six times as likely to have depression, anxiety, conduct, all of those at the same time. This compounds itself. Uh, over six times as likely to have attempted suicide. This is an issue of life. They're dealing with something that's causing them to consider suicide, ending their life. We should be concerned and again, this is just like sin. Sin destroys. Um, we should feel for these people in these areas, and we should be reaching out. So bear with me still in the, the secular argument, but I'm anxious to show you how this compares with the biblical model. Most medical groups have embraced the homosexual agenda and are advocating that lifestyle, despite all of the scientific studies and medical evidence that demonstrate medical and psychological risks. So this is a quote. Um, a political... A firestorm has been created by gay activists within psychiatry, 
with intense opposition to normalizing homosexuality coming from a few outspoken psychiatrists who were demonized and even threatened rather than scientifically refuted. Psychiatry's House of Delegates sidestepped the conflict by putting the matter to a vote of the membership, making for the first time in the history of healthcare that a diagnosis or lack of diagnosis was decided by popular vote rather than by scientific evidence. Homosexuality was once in uh, the DSM, which is a journal on how they diagnose mental conditions. It was once in that, and the reason they removed it from that was because people on the board were homosexual. There was no scientific, scientific evidence given that homosexuality isn't a mental condition. It was just assumed because the people on the board dealt with that. They had that issue. So they said, well, it can't be a mental issue because we're on the board of psychiatry, so it must be fine, so let's take it out of the manual. But it used to be part of that. So it seems that politically correct homosexual agenda is trumping science. Again, no science was given. This is a quote by Dr. John R. Diggs. There are differences between men and women in the consequences of same-sex activity. But most importantly, the consequences of homosexual activity are distinct from the consequences of heterosexual activity. As a physician, it is my duty to inform patients of the health risks of gay sex and to discourage them from indulging in harmful behavior. Again, notice that he says harmful behavior. In secular reasoning, we can say, okay, that's harmful. You shouldn't do it. But is harmful wrong? So if I'm a doctor and I say, this is harmful for your health, can I say, well, it's wrong? I can say it's harmful, so I think you shouldn't do it. But what makes it actually wrong? So you can only go so far with the secular reasoning. Uh, lastly, in the secular, we have the, the idea of the government. What is the government? What does it do? What should be the government involvement? There are no enforced laws against homosexual practices, but lately there's been a push for laws concerning same-sex marriage. Before we can decide on the merits of such a notion, same-sex marriage and benefits, we need to think about the nature and the role of government. What is the government designed to accomplish? And so in the preamble of our Constitution, they set that up. It's real simple. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, our children, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States. So this is what the government was supposed to do. Our government, like many other governments before and since, exists to punish what is evil, protect what is good, and look out for the welfare of this and the next generation. There are many of the social institutions and relationships that government either promotes or prohibits, right? It promotes marriage or did promote marriage between one and woman, but it prohibits murder. We're not allowed to murder because murder is evil, right? So it, 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 it promotes certain things and it, it prohibits other things. It's the government's role to encourage institutions and behaviors that strengthen culture and protect our posterity as, as a society. There are times when it's important to promote the ideal. So we would say that marriage between a man and a woman is the ideal. But sometimes the ideal doesn't happen. So maybe the man leaves and you just have the mother. Does that mean the government should punish the single mother? No. They're not punishing the non-ideal. 
they're just promoting the ideal. It's good for you to be married, a man and a woman in a house, and we're going to support that and financially help you with that while not punishing the non-ideal. It's for this reason that our government doesn't seek to punish single parents' household but does promote marriage in the institution within we raise the next generation. Okay. Government sees a high value in the role of two-parent traditional family units in raising healthy and well-balanced children. So numerous studies have been conducted over the years demonstrating the value that traditional, when I say traditional, I say men and women, uh, family units have uh, children. Children who are raised in traditional two-parent family units are less likely to be involved in delinquent behavior, less likely to drop out of school, less likely to be unemployed, less likely to use drugs as adolescents, less likely to be involved in crime, less likely to become pregnant as teenagers, less likely to be sick, less likely to become poor. Now, these are all positive things. These are wonderful behaviors. But many uh, are tempted to use this as the primary argument uh, because it produces good behavior. But the obvious weakness in this is that the only thing that can change the heart and forgive sins is the gospel. It's not good enough to say, look at all these positive things that happen because of traditional families. It doesn't do anything to get past, well, we change their behavior so they're not poor or they're not on drugs. But ultimately, even if they're not poor or they're not on drugs, they still have sin. And if they die without Christ, they end up in hell. So this only goes so far. Um, this is where people get wrapped up in the social gospel. We need to fix all these social issues and make their lives better. It's not just about making their lives better. We also have to give them the gospel. Um, again, I, I wrote, what good is it for you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? So we can promote all these things. It's better for them to be in a two-parent home with the biological parents. But just because that's better for them, what good is it for them to gain the whole world but lose their soul? So they still need the gospel. Uh, government is in the business of praising what is good and promoting the general welfare. So it's appropriate for government to study this particular issue and promote those family units that, are, uh, that best care for the well-being of young people. After all, these young people will eventually become the next generation of citizens and leaders. Uh, so what kind of foundational relationships should the government promote? Which forms of family unit have the best record of success? So I'm going to put it in an acronym. It's all about the KIDS, K-I-D-S. So let's examine the evidence and try to remember what we learned by using that. K is kind, I is inoculated, D is devoted, and S is secure. Government should promote family units that are non-abusive. They are kind. If kind, non-violent, and non-abusive family units are optimum for raising well-balanced children, heterosexual unions are far more likely to provide the stability and safety required to raise children. And again, I'm not assuming this. Um, I've got a lot of different studies on this that I've taken out for purpose of, of time, but multiple studies confirm these different things. Uh, heterosexual couples experience far less violence in the context of their relationships. For this reason, it's appropriate for government to promote heterosexual family units as ideal over the family units in an effort to provide and encourage the best possible environment for children. Uh, second, inoculated. Governments should promote healthy family units. Disease and illness are often blind to their victims. Anyone can get sick, uh, heterosexual or homosexual. We all get sick. It's part of the fall. But it is clear that families can help inoculate themselves from disease. And it is also clear that families can sometimes expose themselves to higher risk 
for disease and illness. This appears to be the case when we examine the behavior of same-sex couples. Over and over again, we see evidence of the fact that same-sex partnerships are significantly more susceptible to physical and mental disease and illness. If healthy, inoculated parents are the ideal for raising well-balanced children, heterosexual unions are far more likely to provide for the health and well-being of such parents. For this reason, it's appropriate for government to promote heterosexual family units as an ideal over family units in an effort to provide and encourage the best possible environment for children. All right. Devoted. Government should promote committed parental relationships. It's best if there's two parents there. They need to be devoted to one another. Parental commitment and devotion to one another is an important value in the moral development of children. According to both advocates of traditional marriage and advocates of same-sex marriage. So same-sex marriage people that advocate for that agree. It's best if there's two people raising the child. So they agree with that. Studies suggest that homosexual men consider sex outside of the relationship to be normative. They think this to be normal. So I'm in a relationship, but it's normal for me to go outside of that relationship. In fact, many homosexual males simply refuse monogamous, uh, monogamy because they see it as an act of oppression. Don't tell me what to do. I can do what I want to do. Right? It's an act of oppression to say I can only be with one person. That's how they look at it. So if monogamous, devoted parental relationships are optimum for raising well-balanced children, heterosexual unions are far more likely to provide the stability of an intact monogamous two-parent home. For this reason, it is appropriate for government to promote heterosexual family units as an ideal, again, not punishing the non-ideal, but promote the ideal, over other family units in an effort to provide and encourage the best possible environment for children. And lastly, in this argument, is secure. Secure government should promote lasting two-parent family units. It is clear from every study that children who are raised in secure, lasting two-parent households do better than those raised in single-parent households. So it's reasonable for government to promote enduring two-parent family units as an ideal, even if many of us cannot always meet this ideal. And this is where the church is so important, to come alongside those that maybe don't have a two-parent home. Because it's not the ideal, but God is gracious and able to work in that, and that child can be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, even if that's not the case. But we should promote what the ideal is. So here's the simple, pragmatic case. Government exists to praise and promote what is good and prohibit and punish what is evil. Government is responsible for the well-being of its citizens. The well-being of its citizens is dependent on the well-being of its kids. Okay? Two kind, inoculated, devoted, and secure two-parent family units are optimum. They're the ideal for raising well-balanced and healthy children. Uh, kind, inoculated, devoted, and secure two-parent family units are more likely the result of traditional heterosexual marriages. And lastly, four, government therefore should promote uh, and praise traditional heterosexual marriages in an effort to encourage the ideal environment for raising well-balanced and healthy children. So that's the secular reasoning behind it. I think it's, it's sound, it's logical. And everything I've said up until this point is good, but what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that thinking? It doesn't deal with the soul. The question is, is it actually wrong? So from that I can say, well, it's harmful. But is it wrong? 
It doesn't answer the, the why question. Why should government do this? We're assuming that government should do this, but why? Because it's wrong. And we only get that uh, from Christian worldview. We can't get there from, from the secular reasoning. So let's turn to the biblical method. And we're going to look at Old Testament and New Testament because we as Christians know that Jesus is in the Old Testament, he's in the New Testament, he's the fulfillment, it all goes together. We cannot separate them out or pit them against one another. So let's start with Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Looking at verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a a helper fit for him. It's not good for man to be alone, so I will make him a helper fit for him. In some of the versions, it says suitable for him. Now, this word suitable, this is not only talking about the physical differences between men and women, but it's also talking about our complementary roles and personalities. God made Adam a helper that was suitable for him, both physically and in role and in personality. Okay? The the next, go to the same chapter, uh, Genesis 2, look at 21 through 25. 21 through 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had, made, or had taken from uh, the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said this, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Okay, uh, take a look at 23. I think verse 23 uh, reveals several things. Um, this is Adam's response to seeing woman for the first time. Up until this point, he's just been hanging out with the animals, right? Um, and while dog is man's best friend, dog does not compare to woman, right? It's a suitable helper. The dog is not a suitable helper to the man. Adam is completely floored by the magnificence and he breaks into this monologue. So God brings woman along and he's like, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he breaks into this speech about how wonderful it is that he has a helper and a woman uh, to be there for him. We also see from this that God is loving and he loves to give good gifts. This is also uh, usually thought of the opposite homosexuals try to say God is hateful and he just wants to suppress. But here we see that God is loving. He was thoughtful of Adam. He needs a helper suitable for him. And he made Eve. And so we see that God is loving and he loves to give good gifts. God instituted marriage here in the garden and that entailed the gift of sexuality. But we see here in Genesis, it's in its purest form, uninhibited and unchanged, a man and a woman designed for each other. From there we know that sin enters the world and that death and rebellion uh, enter into the created order. A rebellion follow, death follow because of sin. 
that word rebellion I'm using intentionally, rebellion against God. Let's start, again, looking at cases from homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22. This is one of the simplest statements in Scripture. Leviticus 18.22. All right. Verse 22 says this, and this is in a passage talking about the different laws. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Okay, straightforward. There's, there's, other, there's other laws there considering, considering sexuality, but it says here, you shall not lie with a man as you lie with a woman. It's an abomination. Now that seems pretty straightforward, um, it seems like it would be hard for people to argue with that, but many denominations do. The more liberal of these denominations will argue this, that this portion of scripture also contains many other instructions that Christians commonly ignore, like obeying one's parents and respecting the Sabbath. So they argue, uh, if we seem to be able to pick and choose which commandments we are willing to obey, isn't it hypocritical for us to get hung up on the homosexual commandment? Okay? If it's acceptable for us to disobey our parents and work on the Sabbath, why can't we break this commandment also? But they've got the thinking on this all wrong. They don't have the context. Yes, it is true that Leviticus also tells us to obey our parents and observe the Sabbath, but God is trying to tell us what's important to him. We are not to look at homosexuality as something not as important as obedience and the Sabbath, but we are look at, look at disobedience and observing the Sabbath as something uh, that's as abominable as homosexuality. He thinks of disobeying your parents as bad as homosexuality, not observing the Sabbath as bad as homosexuality, not the reverse. He's trying to say, I don't want you to do these things, and that's why it's in that list. Liberal denominations will also argue that the law was eliminated when Jesus came on the scene. Now, we know this to be an issue because if you look at Matthew 5, 7 through 18, and I'll just read it for you. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So to say, well, we're not under the Old Testament anymore. Jesus did away with that. That's not the case. And Jesus himself says so. So listen for that kind of talk. Um, when you're speaking with homosexual, homosexuals. Uh, let's look at some other key texts. These are ones that, that deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. These are major texts that, that they'll use to argue for this. Uh, Genesis 19. This will be a big chapter, uh, a big passage to just to get the context. The question here is, what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? What is the sin? Genesis 19. All right, and I'll just read it real quick. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people uh, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? 
Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came in to sojourn, and he has become a judge. Now will we, we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men, the angels, reached, uh, excuse me, men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they were themselves uh, out groping for the door. They wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men of Lot, then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Right, so there's the, the primary passage for the judgment is of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's take a look at a few things concerning this. It seems pretty obvious um, that the city was being judged for a grievous sin, the sin of homosexuality. The men gathered around the house. They were trying to break down the door to get to the men inside. But liberal uh, Christian denominations and sects want us to believe it was something else altogether. They want us to believe that the city was being judged for, and I've heard these, a lack of hospitality, rape, and even attack against the angels. So let's look, take a look at the context and see if that fits. Look at the situation to see. Um, if you'll turn to Second Peter chapter 2, there's two other passages that teach about Sodom and Gomorrah. Second Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 6 through 10. <clears throat> if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, uh, his righteous soul, over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the key in this passage is the fact that the activity is described as sensual conduct, that Lot saw day after day, okay? So we'll come back to that in building this case. Sensual conduct that Lot saw day after day. The next verse, it's, it's a single verse, uh, Jude, verse 7. Jude 7. It says this, whoops, went too far. There we go. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment 
and eternal fire. Okay? Now, the key verse here, what we're getting out of this is, is the fact that the activity, it's, it's considered gross immorality or sexual immorality that involves, and the ESV puts it this way, it calls it a natural desire. In the Greek, if you look at it, some translations call it strange flesh. So this is where they come up with the argument, well, they were desiring strange flesh, so they were just trying to get after the angels, right? It wasn't homosexuality, they were trying to get to the angels. And we'll look at the context there. So let's sum up. Sum up. It was some kind of activity, sensuous in nature, involves a corrupt desire for strange flesh, pales in comparison to the rape of Lot's daughters, because remember, he op- offered up his daughters, involves victims that the sodomites thought were men, involves men as target victims, and was an ongoing act that deserved death. It was ongoing in the city. So that's what we know for sure. So let's look at some options. Was it inhospitality? Is inhospitality the sin that God is punishing? And no, we know it can't be that because scripture tells us that sin is sensuous in nature. In both of those readings, it said it was sexual in nature. So it doesn't seem to be... uh, in hospitality. It involves a corrupt desire for strange flesh and was ongoing act that deserved punishment. There don't seem to be any laws against not having good manners, right? In hospitality, that's basically manners. There aren't any laws against not having good manners or not being nice. It isn't admirable, but it isn't punishable, especially by death. God doesn't say, well, I'm going to sentence you to death because you weren't nice. He doesn't say that, all right? Furthermore, if this was a judgment for being inhospitable to the angels, we must note that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah weren't inhospitable to the angels until they arrived. If you look at the context of the story, the angels were sent to judge Sodom and Gomorrah before they had been inhospitable, right? They were sent to judge it. So it can't be inhospitality because the angels hadn't even arrived there yet, all right? So the angels were sent to judge before this act would have happened. What about rape? Was it simply the fact that the act was going to be a rape that offended God? In other words, the homosexuality wasn't the problem as much as that it was about to be forced. And I would say, no, we know it can't be that because Lot offered his daughters. And whatever sin we are talking about here, it appears to be more severe than just rape. If they would have raped the daughters, this issue would have been resolved. But these men were focused on the other men, the angels. All right. So what about that? What about the attack on the angels? The men were just trying to get to the angels. It's a bad thing to attack angels, so that's why they're being judged. Was it the fact? I said, no, it can't be that, because there's no indication anywhere in Scripture that the people of Sodom knew that these two men were angels. So the strange flesh cannot mean angels, because the men didn't know that they were angels. And when they refer to them, they say these men. Let's get to these men. So they thought they were men, not angels. What about homosexuality? Well, yes. Every description that it gives of what happened at Sodom points to only one sin. Only one sin fits every description. God was judging the city for the sin of homosexuality, period. Context, looking at it, that's that's what it is. From this, we see that the Old Testament does condemn homosexuality. Let's take a look at another text. Okay, This is a New Testament text, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Uh, Looking at verse 24 through 27. 
Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful or shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now again, here it seems pretty obvious that God hates the sin of homosexual behavior and is describing it as an indecent act here in the book of Romans. You can see that from there. But there are several liberal denominations that even try to reinterpret this passage. So they will argue that God is talking about desire here. And he does not want us to act outside of our natural desire. If homosexuals can argue that they were born this way, and you'll hear that a lot, that then their desire for same sex is natural to them. So if I'm born a homosexual and I naturally desire someone of the same sex, it would be wrong for me to seek after a woman. Because if that's my natural desire, then I would be going against that. Okay? Now... What's the problem here? In fact, uh, if we take a look, a closer look at Scripture, it's not talking about desire. He's focused on something that he mentions twice in the passage. And depending on what translation, but here it says natural relations, not natural desires. They're turning it around. And I think it's in the New American Standard. It says natural functions. The natural functions. This is speaking to the design of men and women. They're complementary. You can't argue that um, function uh, is the same as desire. God is commanding us not to act against our natural function or use of our bodies. Now, even though homosexuals may argue that they have a desire to use their bodies in a certain way, they cannot argue that this is not what their bodies were designed to do. God made us this way. They have to use their bodies in an unnatural ways in order to do this unnatural function, unnatural use of their body. And that's another argument that you'll hear from them. Now, part of the problem here is that we don't want to face our sin or the reality that this kind of continuous rebellion can separate us from God. Now remember, and I'll read this passage to you. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Don't you know that evil people won't have a share in the blessings of God's kingdom? Don't fool yourselves. No one who is immortal or uh, immoral or worships idols or is unfaithful in marriage, so that's even heterosexual, or is a pervert or behaves like a homosexual will share in the kingdom of God. Neither will any thief or greedy person or drunkard or anyone who curses and cheats. Okay? Many people will use this strictly against homosexuality behavior. And I think it fits. He, he mentions homosexuality. Now, certainly we can see that homosexuality is mentioned there, but... Did you also see there are a number of other sins that you and I commit every day that are also on the list? In this list, there's one here. And our culture wants to attack homosexuality as a pet sin. I think it's caused a lot of division in our culture, and it's actually brought reproach to the name of Christ. Oh, you're Christians, you're bigots, you're haters, you hate homosexuals. I think it's because... Many times they'll take that one sin out of that list, but he, he lists unfaithful in marriage, immoral, worshiping idols, 
perverts. Let's not be too quick to judge homosexuals because we're in no better position before God if we're engaged in this activity continually. If we're unrepentant towards our sins, we're in no better position. I mean, if we're saved, yes, but we need to think about that. So the next verse in that says this, and I love this because it gives so much hope to that community. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So just like I've been washed and sanctified of my lustful desires in heterosexual relationships, homosexuals can be washed and sanctified and justified by the spirit of God. There's hope for them. We were like that. Many of us were like that. Um, But Jesus saved us. So what does this teach? What does the Bible teach? Secular data says it's statistically dangerous. It's unhealthy. It's not ideal for kids. Not necessarily wrong, but it's harmful. The Bible says it's contrary to God's design. It's considered a sin, one of many sins that if not dealt with is punishable by death. And a perfect lawmaker declares it to be wrong. It's wrong because he declares it to be wrong because he designed marriage in a specific way. That's why it's wrong. So real quick, I want to give you some objections that you'll hear, and then I'll wrap up. Okay, Uh, Jesus never condemned homosexuality. I was born or created this way. Many churches accept it, so why not? If it doesn't hurt anybody else, why is it wrong? We see it in nature. Don't judge. You shouldn't be judging. Uh, ad hominems, you'll, so you'll hear people call, you're a homophobe, you're a bigot, or you're intolerant. Why is God so harsh on homosexuality? You get that question a lot. Uh, who are you to tell me who to love? It's none of your business. And then um, lastly, it's not something they can change or just wish away on their own. So I'm going to deal with that real quick. Jesus never condemned homosexuality, so it must not matter. If Jesus didn't talk about it, then we can just write it off. This is called an argument from silence, and it's one of the weaker forms of argumentation. By looking at the context, we can see several reasons that this is not true. So turn to Matthew chapter 19 real quick. If they're going to claim that Jesus never talked about it, maybe we should look at what Jesus said. So Matthew chapter 19. We can get there. Okay, 19 verses 4 through 6. He says this. He answered, so he's being questioned, and he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. For therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. All right. This is Jesus speaking. That should sound familiar because he's referencing Genesis. He's speaking back to Genesis. He's referencing the Old Testament. Jesus, and this is, I think, a key argument, Jesus claimed to be God. So anything spoken in the Old Testament by God, Jesus would hold to because Jesus is claiming to be God. So he would hold to that, the Old Testament. Um, Let's see. And also, we see this here. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So again, when they say, well, Jesus never spoke about it, so it's not an issue, Jesus himself says, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. Now, obviously it changes because we're under the New Covenant, but he didn't come to abolish it. It's not like we can just say, well, it doesn't matter anymore. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus recognizes God's design and natural functions of male and female. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi speaking to Jewish people. These were Jews who strove to uphold the Old Testament law. There was no need for Jesus to address homosexuality specifically. Everyone already knew his position. So they say, well, Jesus never talked about it. Well, why did Jesus never talk about it? Well, it's because he was addressing Jewish people who were not homosexual because they knew it was a sin to do so. They, they held the law. All right, number two, I was born or I was created this way. Many people will tell you that homosexuality is a genetic predisposition. So it's in the genes. Uh, they'll tell you, let me get a page turn. They'll tell you that homosexuals are born that way. They'll tell you that they were born that way. If you want to trace our genetic predispositions, you're going to find that we are genetically predisposed towards a bunch of things. So my family struggles with alcoholism. So does that make it okay if they say, well, I was born this way? I was born to be an alcoholic, so it's okay. No, that does not make it okay, right? They struggle with that. Harmful and destructive behavior is in our nature. But our society calls us to rise above our genetic predispositions. We may be genetically predisposed towards adultery, narcotics, or even pedophilia, but we are called to rise above these struggles and to do what is right. Homosexuality is no exception. I, as a heterosexual male, have a predisposition towards lusting after women, but because of my love for my Heavenly Father, for my wife, and for my kids, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Jesus does not save us just into heaven. He saves us from these bodies of death. He saves us from sin. Sanctification is a blessing of salvation, right? If people are struggling with, with same-sex attraction, sanctification is part of that, okay? And we'll deal with that here in a minute. To say that we were created a certain way also implies a creator. I was created this way. Who is the creator? God is the creator. And if you're saying that God made me this way, but then God condemns homosexuality in the Old Testament, there must be something there, Right? We can't blame God for our sinful desires. Obviously, we know that the fall occurred. Our sinful desires come from the fall. Many churches accept it today. Why not? We see it in churches. I mean, here in Ada, there's many churches that accept it. While it is true that many denominations have compromised on this issue, it is clear what the Bible teaches. Instead of rejecting the Bible, they try to reinterpret it. Okay? Churches and ministers are responsible to God for teaching the truth and will be held accountable. So let me just read these verses to you. Matthew 18:6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Right? This is calling pastors to be responsible to the word of God. James 3:1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that he who teaches will be judged with greater strictness. Matthew 5, 19 through 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So we can't say, well, just because some church leaders are saying it, it must be okay. The scripture is our ultimate authority. That's what we go to. If it doesn't hurt anybody, why is it wrong, right? This is just between me and the other person. It doesn't hurt anybody else. Right and wrong are defined by our creator. Like I was saying, the secular arguments can say it's harmful. But what is right and wrong? That comes from a divine creator. Morality is objective, meaning an act is right or wrong regardless of how you feel about it. So even if it didn't hurt anyone else, the act is in itself wrong. As statistics show, it does hurt people directly involved, right? The two people doing it, it does hurt them health-wise. Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. This, the second is like it. You shall love the neighbor as yourself. Notice, loving your neighbor comes second to loving God. How do we love God? Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. John 14, 21. It is impossible to love people, or it is possible to love people, but not be right with God. Loving God comes first. So this argument, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, why is it wrong? Because the first commandment is to love God first, then love people. Okay? So that's why it's wrong, because the divine creator said it's wrong. We see it in nature. You'll hear this a lot. Well, it's in nature, so it must be natural. Humans are created in the image of God and are held to a moral law. Uh, Civilization is built on being civilized as opposed to what comes naturally. We also see animals eating their young and killing their sexual partners, but no one is arguing that we do those things. If they're going to say, well, we see certain animals are are, homosexual, they go after the same gender, then you say, are you saying that we should eat our young? Because animals do that also, right? Some animals kill their sexual partner. Should we do that also? And they'll say, no, 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 we shouldn't do that. Then why are you arguing that we should act like the animals? We're created in the image of God. We do not act like the animals. Uh, Animals have no sense of justice or mercy, but these are things we uphold as honorable. If we're to follow nature's example, then we have to give up these noble traits. Mercy, justice, we have to give those up if we're going to act like animals. Six, don't judge. Only God can judge. We as humans make judgments every day. If we, are made, if we make no distinctions, many of the things we do would actually kill us. We make judgments or we would die. Given the statistics and health risks, we are within our rights to make a judgment on homosexuality. It's a health risk, right? It, it hurts the people involved. Notice we don't make judgments on homosexuals. We make judgments on homosexuality, Right? We aren't judging them. Again, only God can be the judge. They are right in that. But we should call out their sin. Here's a text that they'll use, and I'm sure all of you have heard this. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. It says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. And they just stop right there. Verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. And so they'll use it and say, You can't judge. But he continues, For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it is measured to you. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Verse 5, this is where we get the idea of what is correct judgment. Verse 5, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck of dust from your brother's eye. 
He says, first, deal with your own sin. Then, deal with other people's sin. He's not saying don't judge. He's saying it must be done correctly. If God alone can judge and everyone is guilty, this should be cause for concern. So if someone says to you, only God can judge me, you can't judge me, your response should be, yes, you're right. God can judge you. And how will God judge you? If you stand before God, how will God judge you? Because God can judge and God will judge. So they're trying to sidestep it and, and place it on you. Uh, Time-wise, I think we're, we're past. Um, so let me get to the last point. I've got some more, but we'll move to the last one. I think this is important. It's not something that they can just wish away or change on their own. I hear this all the time. This is, this is my desire. This is, this is how I was made. God made me this way. This one is actually 100% true. They cannot change it and they cannot wish it away on their own. Without the power of God, man has no way of overcoming sin, period. Any sin, not just homosexuality, but any sin. It takes a miracle to make man a new creation. So accomplishing this apart from God is impossible. Man is also created in God's image and therefore volitional. He has to want to change. We know that this happens through the regenerating of the Holy Spirit. No man wants to change. We'll see this in Romans 8, 6 through 8. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, and you'll see a lot of hostility in, the, in this movement, is hostile toward God's, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right? They can't do it on their own, and we can't force them to do it. It takes the spirit to change them. Because man is created in God's image, we're also relational and needs the help uh, of family and friends. Proverbs 27:17. As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. If you have a friend who is a Christian and struggles with same-sex attraction, they need your help. They need the church to come alongside them and say, we're not judging you, we want to help you. Now there's a distinction between same-sex attraction and acting on the sin rebelliously against God and say, I'm a Christian, but I'm also homosexual, and you can't change that, it's okay, that's different. But if there are people out there who are struggling with this, they need our help. We're created to be relational. Also, God can change our desires. Psalms 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you're struggling with anything, alcoholism, Anxiety, homosexual attraction, delight yourself in the Lord. Be in his word, be praying, be seeking after him. This doesn't mean that he will necessarily, but he, ha- he has the ability to. Possibly that's something you're meant to struggle with. We know Paul struggled with different things, had a thorn in his flesh. But he, he is able to, right? So God can do that. So what does this have to do with, with us? I'll say a couple things. Um, we should seek their repentance, right? The only way for them to be saved is for repentance and faith in Jesus. And so I like this quote by Spurgeon. It says, Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. Right? This is what we desire for them because it's, it's, it's 
that's not just harmful. It's not just tearing their lives apart, and it is. But it's wrong, and they face eternity in hell if there's no repentance. We should seek that for them. We should seek them out. Now, this goes back to my point. This may seem kind of odd for us in this context. You know, most of us are church members. We say, well, actually, I don't really know anyone that's homosexual. I don't know anyone. I don't deal with that in my day-to-day life, all right? There's a few things with that. We should be praying because our nation is struggling with, with this. What is it? So we should be praying for the community, our community, which struggles with it. But there might be another reason why you haven't dealt with it. Sometimes um, there's people in our family who are. You might deal with it that way. Sometimes there's not. I, I might pose to you that you don't run into this very much because maybe we aren't evangelizing if we are evangelizing our community, you will run into this. Even if you don't run into a homosexual, homosexual, you will run into someone who agrees with the homosexual and say, well, you're just, you're just a bigot. You're just teaching hate, right? So it might be that we're not evangelizing, okay? And I'm not saying that's the case for everyone, but I would, I would encourage you to be evangelizing because who's going to reach them, right? The gospel is proclaimed through believers, and that's how we reach them. So we should be going forward. Um, we should be praying for them. Um, this is a real thing. And let me show you just how, how fast it can change. Nine years ago, I said that I met with, had my first encounter with a homosexual person. I was in college. It was the second year of college. I go back to a homecoming game in Little Axe, and my sister comes up to me and says, our brother is a homosexual. He came out of the closet this past month. It changes that fast. It could be someone in our family. Now, I pray that doesn't happen to any of you because then what do you do? You've never dealt with it before. Obviously, we have the gospel. We have the saving power of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And so if you haven't dealt with that, you might. But then I'd also say if there's anyone here who is struggling with sin in general, maybe it's not homosexuality, it could be anything, and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you haven't repented, like Spurgeon said, turn from them. Show that you're grieving by doing so no more. If you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do that because our judgment is the same. Sin separates us from God upon death. We end up in hell. We don't want that for anyone, but God is able to save. So put your, tr- your trust and your faith in him if you have not done so. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to to deal with this issue. Lord, I pray that we would be loving towards these people. It's what they're wanting is love. They're wanting relationship, but they're doing so in the wrong manner. They're going against your commands. They're saying that they want what they want regardless of you. So we pray that we would be able to introduce your love and your grace to them in their lives, and they would repent of that. God, we pray that you would help us in our sin, that we would be seeking repentance. We would live good characters so that we can address the issues and not be hypocritical. God, I pray that you would sanctify us, bring us closer to your son. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.